Good. All right. Um, this week we're reading, you're reading Parshat Matot, and we're catching up with you finally in a week. Um, and um, Parshat Matot, uh, which is a parsha that in our framework we often miss because it's uh, when I'm away, um, is also a parsha that's often overlooked because of two things. Most years it is combined with Massey to create the massive laning of Matot Massey. And Massey has so many things in it, including the response of B'nai Yosef to, uh, to B'not Slovchad, Are Miklat, uh, the Masaot, so many other things. Um, and, uh, and the second thing is that, of course, it all comes during the three weeks, and there's a lot of attention on, on Kinot and Megillat Echan, Midrash Echan, things that we've done. So we really have a golden opportunity this week to take a look at Pashat Matot. Pashat Matot itself, itself is made up of three things. The first is the Parshav Nidarim, which seems to be kind of a tail end to Parshat Medina Musafin, which is the second half of Pinchas. Um, and that it comprises the first unit, which we're familiar with from Monday, Thursday laning, and that is, that is Parshat Nidarim. Then there is a huge section, which is Melchemet Midian. And that's the war that Hashem tells Moshe, we're going to come back to that a little bit, that Hashem tells Moshe, you have to go to war against Midian uh, because of Nekama for what happened with the whole scene. And a couple of years ago, we talked about why the Nekama is against Midian if the Znut was the Znut Moab, they're not the same people. And they go to war and the war is successful. And then there's a whole blow up because of them bringing the girls back. And that plays out. And then there's a lot of accounting that goes on in that section about how many of each thing B'nai Yisrael conquered, what the tax was, how it was divided, etc. And then the last section of Parshat Matot is the section we refer to as B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain. And it starts off famously with B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain being introduced to us as tribes that have lots of cattle. And they recognize that the land that we just conquered on the East Bank from Sihon is plentiful and lush and be a great grazing area. And so they come to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's an interesting little piece. They come to Moshe Rabbeinu and say, they mention all sorts of places. And they say, they don't come out and ask for anything. They say, by the way, it's a land that's great for grazing and we got a lot of cattle. Hoping that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to put two and two together and says, I got a great idea. Why don't you guys stay here? Moshe does not fall for it, and this is one of the one of the examples of the famous Vayomer Vayomer phenomenon, when somebody is speaking, and then they continue speaking with no interruption, and they're introduced with another Vayomer, and it happens approximately fifty times in Tanakh, and in the different uh, Vayomer instances, Vayomer Vayomer instances, there are different explanations for it, and one of them, which is certainly the case here, is that somebody was speaking and they were waiting for a response and didn't get it. So they had to try a different angle. So it says Vayomer. So B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain say what they say. And then they say the following. Vayomru, imatsanu chen ba'enacha. Moshe is not going to fall for this trap of, of having him be the one to come up with the idea of having them stay there. He's always on to their game. And he forces them to say it explicitly. If you're agreeable, please allow us to inherit this land. All right? 
Fine. And that leads us to the famous negotiations, um, which are which we're actually going to take a look at a little bit more uh, further on to the she or a little piece of it, which is when um, Moshe turns to them and reams them for what they're doing. They're going to soften and melt the hearts of everybody else uh, in Ben Israel. They're going to be afraid to cross the Ardain, et cetera. And that's when they come up with the famous negotiation and agreement that they will build cities for their children and wives and animals, and that they themselves will go ahead as the lead soldiers in the battle, and only after all the battles are won and the West Bank is conquered will they return to the East Bank. Moshe agrees to it, etc. Okay, but there's a line in here that caught my attention, which is they say the following, and it's bolded and made big: "Al ta'avirenu et ha'yarden." If you're agreeable, let us keep this land. "Al ta'avirenu et ha'yarden." How would you translate that phrase? How would you translate that? Don't cross. Well, then it would be Altavor. What is Altavirenu? I mean, don't make us cross. Don't lead us across. Right. Don't lead us across. <clears throat> you have to thinking, wait a second, what does that mean? That means that their sense is that Moshe Rabbeinu is about to cross the Yarden, and we don't want to go with you. Don't make us go with you. Which, of course, is odd because we are at the end of Sefer Bamibar, and in Perak Chaf, we already heard about the decree that Moshe is not going to lead the people across. So why, why are they talking to Moshe as if that's the case? Now, it is possible to read this pasuk differently and perhaps interpret it as being, don't force us to go across or don't command us to go across, but that is not the simple read of the words. So it got me to ask the question, which is the question, which is the title here, which is when did B'nai Yisrael, the subtitle, when did B'nai Yisrael actually know that Moshe was not going to be going across with them? Which, if you think about it, step back, and again, this is the problem that we always have. We all know how history plays out up until today. We all know how the stories in Tanakh play out. And the result of that is that we're not surprised by anything. We're not surprised by Hashem commanding Avram to take Yitzchak up to the Akedah, and we're not surprised when Avram lifts his hand, and we're not surprised when the Malach says stop, because we all know how it's going to happen, and it robs us of a lot of the, uh, not only the emotional investment in the story, but also of understanding the nuances of the text, which presuppose an audience that doesn't know what's happening, and is hearing this for Ki'ilu the first time. So now we have to ask, what do you think B'nai Yisrael's response or reaction would have been to hear Moshe Rabbeinu saying, I'm not going across with you? Which comes back to the question of, when did they actually find that out? So let's go back to the beginning of when that happens. The first time we ever hear about it is at Meimariva, which is here in Source 2. We're not going to look at the whole, that whole parsha. We've done that a few times about the, the rock and the stick and the anger and whatever else went on. Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, because you did not, best way to translate it probably would be to instill trust. And to sanctify me in the eyes of Israel. Therefore, you will not bring them to the land that I've given them. Now, what does that actually mean? It doesn't mean what we think it means. We think it means Moshe's got to die in the desert. doesn't mean that. It means you can't lead them in. 
And that there's a lot of parshanut on that about whether that was actually the decree that Moshe can't go in or just that he can no longer be the leader to lead them in. And there's some midrashim in that direction. But I'm not concerned with that. My, my concern is, who knows about this? And that is yet another trap we fall into when studying Torah. We read Torah and we assume that everybody in the story knows what we know, because how could we know more than they do? Which would mean, of course, that both Yaakov and the brothers and Potiphar and Paro all know the entire story of Yosef and who sent him where and where he was thrown into, which, of course, the text makes it very clear they don't know because Yaakov thinks he's dead and the brothers don't know where he is. So when we read the story, we have to pay close attention. Who's present? Who knows what? Right now, all we know is that Moshe and Aharon are told you guys are not going to lead them into the land. There is, of course, one very blatant thing that happens right afterwards, which is Aharon dies. Now, once Aharon dies, it's clear that Aharon will not be going into the land, at least not alive, not walking um, with B'nai Israel. But that tells us nothing about Moshe, meaning if I remember B'nai Israel, as far as I'm concerned, okay, Aharon was old, Aharon had to die, died in the Midbar, Miriam had already died, but Moshe, still vigorous at 120, is going to lead us into the land. Why not? So we take a look at what we looked at last week, which is the parsha of the appointment of Yehoshua. We looked at it from a different perspective, but now I'd like to look from the perspective of how did Bnei Yisrael understand what was going on? And I have to remember that the entire conversation, which we looked at last week, between Hashem and Moshe, that led to the, the appointment of Yehoshua, was a private conversation. We are privy to it. doesn't mean B'nai Yisrael were. And Hashem says to, to Moshe, come on up to our Avarim and die because of Meim Riva. And Moshe says to Hashem, by the way, Moshe, remember, an odd pasuk, you have to appoint somebody who's going to take care of them. And Hashem then turns to Moshe and says, okay, here we go. Take Yoshua and appoint him, etc. And he will lead them in, he will lead them out. And that's not the part that concerns me because that's still a private conversation. What does concern me is the last two sukim. So now picture the scene. Moshe comes to Bnei Israel and says, we've got something we've got to do. I'm calling Yehoshua forward. He calls him forward. Elazar is standing there. Elazar is wearing the ring to me, perhaps. And right in front of them, what happens? Moshe puts his hands on Yehoshua, and he gives him the charge. Just like Hashem said to Moshe. Now, if you remember B'nai Israel, you're seeing this. What do you think is happening? And again, you're not privy to the conversation between Hashem and Moshe. So you have every reason to think that what Moshe is doing is we are now preparing for the war of conquest, and you are the general. And unlike the first war that you led, which is the war against Amalek, which was a defensive war, it was a reaction, it was an ad hoc war. So there was no time or reason to create a formal military setting. Here, we're going into a full military formation. And therefore, I'm going to appoint you and properly anoint you as the guy in charge of that. And there's no reason to think that Moshe is not going to be there. And so we move on. 
Now, when we get to our parsha, we have the story of the war against Midian. And what does Hashem say to Moshe? Source four. You have to lead the war against the Midianim, and then you'll die. And by the way, remember that this was not the original plan. The original plan was in Pinchas, come up and die. And then Moshe says, oh, Yoshua, and things kind of get stretched out. And now it seems like there's one last opportunity for Moshe to, to be in, involved in leadership, and then he's going to die. But who is speaking to whom? Hashem is speaking to Moshe privately. What does Moshe say to Ben Israel? He doesn't say, listen, guys, this is my last chance. Let's do it right. So Moshe says, okay, let's get some volunteers, wherever we're going to understand Hechatsu. And we'll have a thousand from each tribe, we'll go, and we end up with 12,000 and Pinchas, etc. Which means that, again, as far as B'nai Israel is concerned, what do they see? They see Moshe commanding a last war on the East Bank in which they organize the troops. And for whatever reason, Yoshua is not involved with this war. This seems to be a different kind of war. It's not a war of conquest. It's a war of nikama. It's more of a, if you will, a holy war or religious war. And therefore, the leader here is the Kohen Pinchas. And of course, Pinchas is the fellow who sort of was at the root of this by his uh, zealotry against uh, Zimri ben Salu. And we don't know that, the, we onlookers don't know that this is Moshe's last act. It's not exactly his last act, but his last act of leadership of the nation. So let's roll ahead. What happens in, uh, in the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven, which is where we started from? Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruven, and just to clarify something, we always talk about the two and a half tribes, Bnei Gad, Bnei Ruven, that is accurate somewhat because chatsi doesn't really mean half, it means part of, and it's only one of the families of Menashe that we're talking about, the family of Machir. But we have to remember that it was only Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain who came forward with this request and who negotiated that was all just Gad and Ruvain. Menashe, important to note, always had land on both sides. It looks like both banks, but it's really not both banks. Because just from a, uh, a topographical or a toponymical perspective, what do you call the West Bank? Where's the West Bank? So the West Bank is where there's a river and there's a side of the river. So you would call um, uh, Beit El part of the West Bank. You'd call Tel Aviv part of the West Bank. You would not call Lebanon part of the West Bank just because it's west of the river, because it's not bordering the border. The river starts way south of it. Where does Menashe, if you look at a map, where does Menashe inherit? They inherit in the north, in Shechem, and north of Shechem, and their inheritance goes above the Kinneret into the area of the Bashan. And so they've always had that land. It's always been part of their inheritance. And there's a lot of ways to demonstrate that, including the names that Menashe and his children gave to their children while in Mitzrayim were the same names of the territory, including Gilad, uh, that was up there. So at the end, Moshe then grants land to Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain and that family Manashe, we're going to get that land anyways. Okay, so in that story, Moshe turns around and reams Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain for their desire to not cross. And he says, And this, by the way, is 
one of six different viewpoints on the story of the Miraglim that exist in Tanakh. In this story, he blames the 10 scouts for softening Am Yisrael's hearts and making them weak and their resolve to come across. None of these people are going to cross. Now, Moshe is talking about everybody in the third person. Except for Kalev and Yoshua, which means of this group, none of them are going to cross except those two. Now, you're B'nai Yisrael and you're listening to this narrative that you know very well because you buried your parents. They all died in the Midbar, which means everybody who has died off in the Midbar is part of that decree. Who is telling us about this? Moshe Rabbeinu, which makes it sound like Moshe Rabbeinu is not part of this decree. And there's no reason to think that Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to continue on. We don't know about Memoriva yet. And we also don't, meaning we know what happened. We don't know that there was a decree as a result. And we certainly don't know that there's a decree in any other way. And so now we roll on in Bamidbar and um, in, in uh, Paraklamid Bet, which is the continue on the story of B'nai Gavne Ruvain at the end of it, that's a successful conclusion, just before we're told about what cities Ruvain and God and, and part of Menashe get, we're told So Moshe then directs a, a contractual relationship between the leadership of Yoshua and Elazar, which is, by the way, generation two of Moshe and Aaron, and uh, the leaders of each tribe, so if they cross, they get this land. If they don't, then they'll stay with you. Fine. Now, we who know Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to be there understand full well why Moshe is making this contractual deal between Yehoshua and the Bnei Gad Bnei Ruvain because Moshe is not going to be there. But there's no reason for us to think that if we're standing by. As far as we're concerned, Yehoshua and Elazar, the people who are going to be overseeing the division of the land, Moshe is going to be doing whatever he's doing leading them from some central Mishkan, whatever it might be. And so therefore, they have to be the ones who are involved with this negotiation. We move ahead. And as we get to the end of Sefer Bamidbar, we hear the following. And one Nasib per tribe, and we're given the names of the Nasim for who are going to be involved in the division. Again, this says nothing about Moshe not being there. All this says is that Yoshua and Elazar are the ones in charge of the conquest and the division. Okay, so now let's see when we get to the end of Sefer Bamidbar, what do we know as the present audience? We know that Miriam has died and Aaron has died. We know that Moshe told us that there was a decree that everybody has to die in the desert of that generation, and Moshe is the one telling us about it. So clearly, he's not involved in that decree, he's not affected by that decree. We don't know anything about any other decree. We also know that Moshe identifies Yoshua for some special job, and it involves working with Elazar Kohen. And then we find out that they're the ones who are going to be working on the conquest and division of the land. But again, we don't know that Moshe is not going to be part of that picture. 
I want you to imagine how Bnei Yisrael felt so abandoned and so scared when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to the mountain. That's before the whole desert experience. When he went up to the mountain and as far as they're concerned, he disappeared. Imagine how they're going to feel now when they find out that Moshe Rabbeinu is not going to be coming with them. He's not coming down or coming back. He's dying. So it's going to be a shock. But I'd like to suggest that up until Moshe's speech of Sefer Dvarim, Bnei Yisrael are clueless about it. Okay, so we're going to hop through Tvarim, and we're going to see a very interesting thing happen. Moshe, at the beginning of Tvarim, the first three chapters of Tvarim are a historiosophy, where Moshe Rabbeinu retells the story very quickly of getting to where they're at, including not crossing through Ammon's territory, not crossing the Moab's territory, not crossing through Adom's territory, but yes, taking Sichonan in battle, etc. And earlier on, he tells the story of the quote-unquote Miraglim. And in this version of the story, the quote-unquote miraglim are fine. Take a look at Pasuk Hafe. They brought back fruit and they said it's a good land. And you guys didn't want to go. And you complained. And you said you're going to be destroyed. And I told you not to be afraid. Hashem is with you. Right? And Hashem is taking care of you this whole way. By the way, this is a third take on the miraglim. There's Shlach, there's Matot, there's Dvarim. There's also Tehilim, there's also Nechemiah. Right? There's actually six places in Tanakh where there's different, and there's, and there's Yoshua, where we see the story from different perspectives. And then what was his decree? If any of these people are, are going to cross line, means they're not. I'm taking an oath that they won't. Who are the only people out who are not who are not involved, or right now just Kalev is the only guy who's choosing from this. And then Moshe Rabbeinu says something fascinating because he's now telling a story in year 40 about something that happened in year two. And he says, God got angry at me also and said, you can't come. Which as far as I'm concerned, I'm reading right now that Moshe Rabbeinu for the first time is telling them, I'm going to die in the desert, I'm not going with you. But hold your horses, that's not the case. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, 38 years ago, Hashem got angry at me and said, you're not going to come to the land. Yoshua is the guy who's going to be in charge. He's, however, if I'm member of Israel, i got to remember, wait, what's one thing among many that I know about Moshe Rabbeinu and his relationship with God? That sometimes God gets very angry. Sometimes God threatens destruction. And Moshe Rabbeinu is able to intercede. So maybe all that Moshe is telling us is that 38 years ago, Hashem almost took me out of the picture. But he didn't, and I'm still here. So again, I still don't really know what's going to happen. We roll to the end of Parshat Devarim, and in a minute I'm going to comment on what I think a subtext of all of Sefer Devarim is, is, is here, is that Moshe retells to B'nai Yisrael, after the conquest of Sihon, so I told Yoshua, you see everything that Hashem did, that's what he's going to do in the land, don't be afraid. Now again, at that point I could say, sure, that's what he's telling his general. And then Pashat Vet Hanan opens up a new window. Now, is not 38 years ago, it's just after the victory of Sihon. 
I begged God and I said, you've shown your great hand. I'd like to cross over and see the land. And I God got angry at me because of you. And he said, you've got enough. I don't want to hear any more. Go up to the mountain, look in every direction. You're not crossing. And direct and charge Yoshua. He's going to be the one to cross. At this point, I'm convinced Moshe Rabbeinu is going to die. Yoshua is in his place. Except for three words. At that point, I turned to God and I begged. And what was Hashem's response? No, you're not going into the land. Go to the top of the mountain, take a look around and die, and make sure Yeshua is in place to take over. But Moshe Rabbeinu was telling us about something that happened a few months ago. Dare I dream that maybe that decree was also softened? I wouldn't think so. And Moshe then makes it very clear, but maybe not very clear. And it's, of course, odd to say very clear, but maybe not very clear. But at the end of his opening presentation of the of Matan Torah, Perak Dalar is a huge, half of which is the, the, the reading on Shabbat. Hashem took you out of Mitzrayim. God got angry at me because of you. Swearing not to allow me to cross. Why? Now for the first time he actually says it. Not God decreed. Not I beg. But reality, I'm going to die in this land. I'm not crossing. You're going to cross. Be careful not to, etc. And all of the rest of the Sefer seems to be, this is my last charge to you because I'm not going to be with you there. That's what it seems like. And it seems like that because when he talks to them in the, in the description, it says, you're crossing, I'm not crossing. All right. However, there's one little knach in the middle that maybe gives me pause. And remember, I'm part of the audience of Sefer Dvarim. I don't know Sefer Dvarim. I don't have a Chumash Dvarim with Uncle Sinrashi sitting on my shelf. I'm hearing it from Moshe Rabbeinu as it's happened. Moshe Rabbeinu tells us what we've heard so far, and it sounds like he is going to die, but then I hear this. Moshe's retelling of the Egel, and watch what he says. It's telling what he tells, what he he recounts. I fell in front of God for 40 days and 40 nights. God was going to destroy you. By the way, what had God already told me that I'm going to go to the top of the mountain and die? God had committed to destroy you. By Palel El Adonai, prayed to God. Did we hear that Moshe already prayed to God to let him go into the land? We did. I prayed to God, Va'omar, Adonai Elohim, Al Don't destroy this nation that you redeemed with such great power. I'm listening to the words, and in the background, I'm hearing not just a prayer about Bnei Yisrael, but a prayer about for himself. Zechor la'avadecha li'avraham li'itzchak u'liyakov. Remember the break that you made with them. Al tefen al k'shi ha'amazel v'rishol v'alchatato. Don't 
Don't look at this nation's stubbornness and its wickedness and its sin. And I'm hearing in the shadows of that statement, look away from my weakness, whatever it might have been. And here's his argument. What is Moshe Rabbeinu's most powerful argument that keeps Hashem from destroying B'nai Israel in the Midbar? Several times. The Mitzrim are going to say what? God could not bring them into that land. When we see it's because he hated us. He took us out of the desert and wiped us out in the desert because he doesn't have the strength to bring us into the land. It's a chilul Hashem if you don't let us come into the land and, and conquer it. And I hear in the background Moshe Rabbeinu saying, and it's a chilul Hashem of the person who stood up and represented you in the court of Pharaoh isn't able to lead them into the land. And this can all circle back to Moshe. And now watch how Moshe almost sneaks himself in. By the way, this is not the only time that we have a leader who Hashem has said, you're not going to continue, and then he keeps trying to hold on. Most famously, Shmuel. But I'm giving you, I'm, I'm, this is Moshe speaking to them. I'm presenting to you the bracha and the kola. Right? And don't think at all that the second person here means, and I'm not included, because at no point does, does he say, he never says that, even back in Shemot. And he tells them exactly where they are. So there's nothing here that says I'm not going to be there. And this continues throughout. And now we start to get a hint of a future, but not necessarily negating Moshe Rabbeinu in the land. In Parshat Shoftim. And something, by the way, we're getting closer to the end of Sefer Dvarim. This is the end of Moshe's speech. And we still can't hold down a firm commitment that we don't want to. It's something we don't want to hear. None of us want to hear that Moshe Rabbeinu is not coming with us. But I still haven't heard it firmly. And we get the mitzvah, when you come into the land and you say, I want a king. Now, why would Israel say, I want a king? Because we don't have a leader. Uh, where's Moshe Rabbeinu? Okay, good, but that could also be in three generations. That doesn't have to be next week. And then, in, later on in Parshat Shoftim, we're told about all the pagan rituals that we're supposed to avoid. And in, in, in the response, in, in, instead, Tamim you should be wholehearted with God, because all of these nations have all of this other nonsense, you have Hashem. And therefore, God will raise up a Navi like me, who will take, and he'll be the one that you listen to, through God's voice, like me, just like you requested at Arsinai. Does that mean Moshe Rabbeinu is not going across, and when they need help, another Navi will show up? Not necessarily. It could mean I'm going to be with you. And at some later point, you want a king, you want a Navi, because I'll be gone. I'm not going to live forever. That doesn't mean I'm going to die here. So here's finally when it becomes clear. Parshat Vayelach, which is such an overlooked parasha, because first of all, it's almost always Nitzavim Vayelach. And Nitzavim has so many powerful things, Parshat Chuba in it, and the Brit of Nitzavim. It's such big stuff. 
and Nitzvah and Yerach together are so small, and together it's 70 Pesukim, and they always come, of course, right before Rosh Hashanah or during, during uh, Shabbat Shuvah, and therefore there's so much other stuff to talk about, but Parsha Ve'elech, all of it's 30 Pesukim, that's all, the whole thing. Here it is, pretty much, almost. Yeah, there it is. Is really a preface to Moshe's song of Hazina. And in Parshat Ve'elech, finally, Moshe says to them, Ben Me'av Esrishan Arachi Ayom. I'm 120 today. I can no longer lead. Hashem has said that Yoshua is the one I have to hand it over to. And he makes a public statement in front of Ben Israel, handing the charge over to Yoshua. And there's so many pieces to this puzzle that all indicate a real transfer of power. That Moshe and Yoshua together are the ones who present Shirat Hazinu. It's a transfer of power. And then you can look into Shirat and into Parshat Ve'elach, see so many statements which are effectively saying, we hoped, we held on to that hope, we're now at the end of this road, and now that hope is gone. I really am not crossing with you. Now, there's two ways to look at this, and I don't think one is more persuasive than the other. One is that Moshe Rabbeinu really doesn't know. And that throughout his speech in Dvarim, he is appealing subtly to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to forgive him and say, okay, you can cross, and as soon as you cross, you're going to die. You get to go across. You get to go across and live for a month, a year. I'll give you another 15 years, like I'm going to give to Chizkiyahu, fine. Or that Moshe Rabbeinu knows the whole time that he's not going to cross. But as the great compassionate leader that he is, he, he doesn't want to hypnotize Israel with that shock. And so he slowly brings them along in his speech in Sefer Dvarim to start planting the idea that I'm not going to be with you. You're going to want a king. You're going to want a Navi. Yoshua is in charge. Yoshua and Elazar together in charge. Yoshua and Elazar are the second generation. You know that Aaron's died? Well, I'm going to die too. Just like Elazar took over, Yoshua is going to take over. And then finally, after Shirat Hazinu, Hashem says to Moshe, okay, now come up to Har Avarim and die on that mountain. But again, the Israel don't know about this conversation. So what happens next? Zot Moshe Israel Moto. This is Moshe's bracha. Now, how would B'nai Israel know now Okay, it's a confirmed thing. He's not coming across with us. Because this bracha is such a powerful parallel with another series of brachot that we have at the end of, of, of Breshit, which is Yaakov's deathbed brachot to his sons. But besides that, listen to the words that happen here. Moshe presents the greatness of Hashem's appearing to B'nai Israel and the relationship between them and B'nai Israel. And then what do Bnei Yisrael say back? This is not Moshe speaking. He's not saying that. It would be a strange thing for him to say. They are now looking at the Torah as a completed piece and all given to us by Moshe. And what do they then say about Moshe? Because according to many, this Melech is Moshe. We've all gathered together. That's when we have this king, and this king was Moshe Rabbeinu. And by the way, there's a hint here because uses the same word, which is the word Hashem uses to Moshe to say, die. 
And he gives the brachot. And again, it's not explicit. It's not in your face that he's not going to come with them. And now what happens? He gives them this great bracha after the brachot to these individual tribes, this great, beautiful bracha at the end. And basically saying, you don't need me. You don't need Yahushua. HaKadosh Baruch is with you and is going to take you into the land and is going to lead you. And by It is a gorgeous land you're going into. And you hear the pain in Moshe's voice, Ashrecha Yisrael, but he can't say Ashrecha. Am Noshab Adonam, again, Israel, you are a nation that's saved by Hashem. He is your shield. You will march on their high places. And that's the last thing he ever says to B'nai Israel, Because the next thing that happens, he goes up to the mountain, Hashem tells him to look around, and Hashem tells him to die, and he dies on the mountain. What we've seen over the course of those last 38 minutes is that the statement that Bnei Gan and Bnei Ruben said to Moshe all the way back in Parshat Matot, this week's Parsha, reflects a belief that Bnei Israel had that Moshe is going to continue his leadership all the way into the land. They have no reason to think differently. And we then noticed that all of the statements that indicated that Moshe Rabbeinu was not going to cross were statements given to him privately. Hashem told him, we don't have any reason to think he told Bnei Israel. And little by little, as we go through Sefer Tzvarim, Moshe continues to grapple with this information, either grappling with it as a reality and hoping that Hashem will forgive him and allow him to cross over, or else grappling with the, the, the presenting the information to Bnei Israel, knowing how painful it'll be for them. But look how gently and how beautifully he delivers it until finally, at the end of the road, his last statement to them essentially is, you don't need me or any leader, you are the people of Hashem. And that's the last thing he says to them before he goes up to the mountain and then is gathered to his people. So uh, one little phrase in Parshat Matot set off a whole new understanding, perhaps a new understanding of, uh, of this passage in, uh, in, say, in this, this whole issue and uh, a series of passages in Sefer Varim.